Welcome, listeners. This is NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. Today is April 20th, 2017, and tonight we are talking about the NWP Archives Project. I'm your host, Tanya Baker, at the National Writing Project in Berkeley, California. Three years ago, in partnership with the Bancroft Library at the University of California in Berkeley, NWP launched the NWP Archives Project to ensure preservation and accessibility of the NWP organizational records, publications, and resources, including more than 100 oral history interviews from founding writing project site directors, scholars, teacher leaders, and funders. The NWP Archives provides a rich resource for all who are interested in the history of literacy and, in particular, composition and rhetoric, and the role of teacher leadership and professionalization in the United States, as well as the spread of the National Writing Project model to a range of international locations. This week we've been celebrating the grand opening of the NWP archives at the Bancroft Library where a special exhibit, Teachers at the Center, the Story of the National Writing Project, opened this week and will be on display in the Roswell cases at the Bancroft Library until September 1st. Tonight we're fortunate to be joined by some important members of our National Writing Project community including Elise Eidman Adol, the Executive Director of the NWP, Judy Buchanan, the Def Deputy Director of the NWP, and the NWP Lead on the Archives Project, Mary Ann Smith, former Director of Government Relations and Public Affairs at the National Writing Project, and currently a highly prolific writer of books about the NWP and the teaching of writing, and Richard Sterling, Executive Director Emeritus of the National Writing Project. Goodness, <laughs> thank you all for joining us tonight. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks. Uh, we'll begin by bringing in Judy Buchanan to talk about the Archives Project. Judy, can you tell us first how did this project get started? Sure. Thanks, Tanya. Um, well, the Archives Project began with a proposal. What else would you expect from NWP? Um, the National Endowment um, for the Humanities issued a call for proposals for preserving archival material um, back in 2011, and we gave it our best shot. Unfortunately, we didn't receive any funding. Um, there are lots of uh, people who want to do this kind of work. So, so we didn't receive the funding for that project. Um, so what happened next? Well, um, we had made the first um, important contact with the Bancroft Library at the University of California, Berkeley. And so we decided that we would just try to launch um, the project ourselves since we had already worked on a budget, uh, the core problem of, of what it would cost to do such a thing. And so we pursued um, what's called a gift agreement with the library to house our materials. And that was completed in November of 2014. And in order to make it a reality, we had to fundraise ourselves um, to hire a part-time archivist um, to work at the Bancroft Library and preserve our collection. And um, we actually started by also cleaning out our storage facility and moving things from um, off-site storage uh, in downtown Berkeley to the university storage facilities. And um, we moved lots of boxes in, in December 2014. And then we did a huge fundraising campaign that involved I'm, I'm sure many listeners on uh, this show, as well as the NWP Board of Directors and Writing Project colleagues from across the country, and we met our first fundraising goal in, in about eight months, so it was pretty great fundraising for us, and we were able to launch the work. So what was in all those boxes, Judy? 
Okay, well, NWP staff says everything. So um, you have to picture back in the day when it was all print and not digital. Um, all of our print publica publications, the quarterly, the voice, all of the NWP books, annual meeting programs, foundation and federal grant proposals, annual site reports from all writing project sites over each of the years that people submitted all those paper documents, um, news clippings, research studies, photos, um, cassette recordings, and just anything you can think of that could be in print about the National Writing Project. Um, also, Jim Gray's family um, had contributed his papers to the NWP. And along with 100 oral history interviews um, from founding directors, um, we also had Jim's earliest thinking about the Writing Project because of that contribution. How many boxes did you move in all, or did were moved in all? Um, our list says 159, and so we'll go with that number. Lots of boxes, carefully stored. And, um, <laughs> and there may have been some things later as we kept cleaning out our files, but um, that, that's the library like, was really great. It sounds like a lot of stuff. So what happens if you want to build an archive after you drop your boxes off at the library? Okay. Well, the most important next step is to hire an archivist. <laughs> and so um, we were the fundraising really is um, what allowed us um, through the UC um, Berkeley Bancroft Library to hire the library hired a part-time archivist in August of 2015. Uh, Lori Didian, a recent graduate from UCLA School of Education and Information Studies, she she came to Berkeley. She actually had been a Berkeley undergrad, so she moved back up to work with our materials. And um, she was fabulous and is fabulous. Uh, and she created a catalog of, um, which is called a finding aid, so that all of the NWP materials are accessible to scholars, research, researchers, and all of us. And it took about a year to do the first phase of the work, which um, was all that print material. Um, and then the team began to move on to some of our uh, websites. You can now archive websites, which is exciting. And also, um, we've begun moving our digital files. We're far from finished with that yet. Well, that answers my next question. I was about to say, so 159 boxes and the websites, are we done? Um, if we're not done, what's next, Judy? Well, really the vision is that the NWC Archives is a living archive and will continue to contribute materials annually um, and keep working on the collection. Um, and so this is the first phase is just about completed with the launch of the exhibit, but there still will be annual work going forward. That's Fantastic. Um, thank you for that overview, Judy. It's really, um, uh, every time we think about or talk about this story, I, I really, it just helps me to have the picture of 159 boxes and all of that stuff and then <laughs> the work of the archivist. Um, I am excited now to bring in Richard Sterling and Marianne Smith to talk to us about the history that the archive set out to capture. So. First, Richard and Marianne, perhaps each of you could tell us a little bit about your history with the National Writing Project. 
Richard, would you like to go first? You, well, I think Marianne, you should go first as you, are, um, you precede me by a year. <laughs> <laughs> I was enough. afraid you might say that. Very, very <laughs> subtle. <laughs> okay. Well, my experience with a writing project began with a very very first Summer Institute of the Bay Area Writing Project in 1974. And I was a middle school teacher. Um, so when I was suddenly in the company of the smartest teachers I had ever met, I was pretty intimidated. Um, these were really high-caliber teachers. But I think I was also motivated to give my best to this experiment because I thought it was so gutsy. Um, I had talked a lot to Jim Gray about this idea for the Institute, but until I walked into that room in Tolman Hall, I, I just couldn't imagine the power of bringing teachers to UC Berkeley to do something for our profession and, and for each other and for students. Um, we often say it was, it was just electrifying. I want to say one thing about the context, because I've been thinking about this, the fact that the writing project was a movement, and of course we wouldn't have thought of it as a movement during our first five weeks together, but there were so many movements in the 70s, including the anti-war movement, but especially movements of marginalized groups of people like women and African Americans, gays and lesbians. So. I think to the extent we would say that teachers were marginalized, they certainly weren't looked to or listened to for what they can contribute to improving education. And I think the writing project started and had a lot to do with changing that. Marianne, I can say I a lot um, more, but Richard, I'll give you a chance. <laughs> okay. Well, um, I started in 19, uh, we started the New York City Writing Project in 1978 with Sandra Pearl and John Brereton. And that came about from a conference, I think it was Four Seas, that was in San Francisco when we were approached after a presentation by Jim Gray. And all three of us were teaching writing in the sort of open admissions programs at the City University of New York. And I must say, and the others here have heard me say this before, but uh, we were pretty skeptical about the proposal that Jim and Mary Kay made to us, that we were going to get a $5,000 check, which most of which would either pay for tuition for teachers or give them a stipend, and they were going to run this program. We thought it was a, a pretty airy-fairy California idea and didn't have much faith in it. <laughs> And um, But we did, as we were told, and we uh, advertised and got um, really about 50 applications for teachers who I suspected needed the uh, credits for their increments in salary. But nevertheless, they came. And the most astonishing thing, I think, was how absolutely brilliantly it worked. I had had no experience, and I don't think Sandra or John had either, of teaching in schools. And so, in fact, we couldn't have done it without the teachers, once they believed us, taking control of this and effectively implementing the model and teaching us what they needed from us. It was an extraordinary experience, and, and I can see that first Summer Institute 
today. I can see the faces of the teachers, many of whom went on with us for at least 25 years, and some of them are still with us today. So it was an amazing thing. And so that was my beginning with the uh, writing project. And a little later, I can tell you about the, the other big move, which was the Urban Sites Network, but I'll pause there for a minute. That's great. I want to thank you both so much. And I feel like I have to say that I started my day this morning in a dissertation defense uh, with a young woman talking about mentorship and, and teachers' experiences in the Summer Institute uh, that she'd just written her dissertation about. And Marianne, you're leading with that idea of um, being in the company of the best teachers I've ever met and being both intimidated and motivated feels to me like an idea that is as fresh and as likely to be experienced now, 43 years later, as the first time it happened. And it's just, I don't know, I have goosebumps. It's kind of amazing <laughs> to hear you both tell the story. So thank you. Um, you've both worked at... You both were you both worked at the National Writing Project over a period of time when the NWP was growing as a network. So I'd love to hear, um, in your own opinions, uh, what were some of the important moments in the history of the Writing Project, as far as you're concerned. And Richard, why don't you take this one first? Okay. Well, one of the things that uh, we became aware of as we talked to teachers is that. A lot of the experiences of teachers in other parts of the country didn't map on to the experiences of these teachers in the Bronx and Brooklyn. And as Marianne said, schools were under siege in those days. There were many, many problems. Um, there wasn't a lot of funding. And teachers did not feel respected at all. Uh, but a lot of the teachers felt that urban schools particularly had issues that Nobody recognized. Uh, of course, that's a typical New York way of looking at the world. But nevertheless, they sort of said, well, what other cities are in this network? And so the idea for the urban sites came about from uh, a man, in, I think this is right, at least, correct me if I'm wrong, that Joe Check in Boston. <laughs> I, I believe we recognize that idea. name, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think he was the one who first put it in our heads at an annual meeting of um, the huge network, I think about 25 of us in total, sat around in a circle. Marianne and and which sure. he managed to get the Boston um, Public Schools Central Office to host. Yes, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Excellent. And, and it was an amazing meeting because we had to come up with a definition for urban. And I think at least you may have contributed this, that you said, well, it had to have a subway. And that was the uh, sort of operating definition at the time. So if you didn't have a subway, you weren't urban. And, of course, that, we had to extend that sometime later. Well, you know, Remember Richard, since this is, being, this is being recorded, so I have to make a slight correction for the historic record of <laughs> yeah. the archives, which is Good. that actually I believe that it was uh, a New Yorker, Carla Asher, who suggested that you had to have a subway, thinking that that might disqualify Baltimore, where I was from as a city, which had just put in a subway. So I was able to say, aha. <laughs> The Bay Area only started its subway about 1971 anyway, so they were very recent. <laughs> and we don't call it that. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, um, 
we came up with this list of cities and it, and it started growing. And then we had an amazing piece of luck. Um, we all remember Reader's Digest. And Reader's Digest went public around 1979 or 1980. And they were suddenly rich with huge <laughs> uh, amounts of money. And they literally wanted to... Um, wanted to get rid of it as quickly as possible. I had this new foundation. And the woman came to us and said, um, what do you want the money for? So we, we were bold. We said, we want $50,000 so that we can, um, so we can you know, work with other cities to improve the teaching of writing. And she said, would you add a zero to that? Tell me what you could do with that. And we looked in absolute amazement. And she said, do you think you can manage to do that? I said, oh, absolutely. And so we began planning for the national, for the Urban Science Network to spread across the country. And that's where it began. And then we had New York, Baltimore, Boston, Chicago, Philadelphia, the Bay Area, Los Angeles, St. Louis, and others. I mean, it just grew and grew and grew. And it was an amazing, and that was the thing that really changed my world and changed my life. Lovely. How about you, Marianne? What's an important um, moment in the history of the writing project for you? Well, you know, I was thinking when you were describing how that Urban Site Network developed, Richard, that it really is kind of a mirror for how the project itself developed, that it started with a group of teachers saying, this is what we want, this is what we need next, and then people responding to that and trying to figure out how to do that and um, and how to get money and and how to invite people and how to do something that's really relevant to the challenges that they see in urban classrooms. And I think in some way the whole network developed that way, um, you know, on a more global idea of teaching writing um, to everyone. But... But it really started, I think, network started with individuals, and I was thinking about the First Summer Institute and the fact that we didn't want it to end, but, you know, there was no plan to go on. Um, I think these things evolve. It, they start, as the urban sites did, with individuals who want to do something, and in our case, we just wanted to see each other again. And, you know, this was a time when... There were dial telephones stationary um, in your living room or your uh, kitchen. We weren't carrying them around in our pockets, so we had to make our own plan to have our own little network and keep going. So when school started, we jammed into Miriam Yolvesacker's living room, which had to be the smallest living room in the entire Bay Area. <laughs> and we just sort of sat on each other's laps and talked. There wasn't any agenda. It was okay. I mean, we've improved from that moment what to do after the Institute, but I think it stands for how much teachers want good, smart company um, to help solve the problems that they're facing every day and to make things better. Um, and really, I think it was the writing project directors themselves and the teachers who developed the larger network by reaching out to people that they knew uh, who might want to start a site um, by getting together, Richard, you were in that very first advisory board and telling Jim how to grow the project, even though he was so nervous about it um, because he was so scared that anything would interfere with the vision of the project. But um, it developed because of people really wanting to see it go, and then we were able to get 
federal funding, and we were off and running. Uh, this this is just the happiest hour for me as a host. And our <laughs> our, our NWP listeners are going to be so happy to be reliving this history with you. Um, I know you have many, many more stories, but I wonder uh, when you think about the writing project as an enterprise, what are the most important ideas or ideals of the writing project in your opinion? Marianne? Well, I mean, the obvious important idea is that teachers have so much to contribute to education and I think it's important to say in this day and age they have so much to contribute regardless of the policy climate. So that I would say that's one of the most important ideas. Hmm. Yes, I would I would add to that that it, it similarly it's an investment in the intellectual life of teachers, and it is um, you know when when you actually believe that teachers have things to offer that they are thoughtful and um, and are passionate about learning what works uh, and examining their experience with others it's it I couldn't I was just stunned at how much it how rich the teachers experience was when they were truly respected for what they knew and what they brought and it is that belief in teachers intellectual life that I think is at the heart of the project for me and the teachers that I met over the years all over the country all of them brought that and I mm. think that's what makes the National Writing Project unique. I think I make that argument a lot too, Richard, and I'm sure I learned it from you or in your company. Um, what do you, both of you, we hold you tight and close to the Writing Project and claim you as our own, but neither of you spend your working days at the Writing Project anymore. I wonder what do you take from your work in the Writing Project uh, into the world, your life, or your work today? Hmm. Go for it, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been a teacher a long, long time, and I was lucky enough to be able to teach all the way through uh, my work at the National Writing Project, although I missed maybe a semester here and there. And it taught me to be a better teacher because I learned from the teachers in the writing project. And I think the thing that I take from it is the ability to listen. And on, a, on a really personal note, I learned to work with women. The project <laughs> in New York was mostly women. And, um, and learning to truly listen was the thing that I've learned over the years and to actually, I find that in my life, it's helped me in every other conceivable way. But it was in uh -huh. the company of, of these extremely uh, talented teachers that I really was lucky enough to be able to learn all of those things. And it was through listening. And I think that's the thing that I take with me in my retirement and in the work, the bits and pieces of work that I do now. Lovely. I think Very that's absolutely lovely. I I can't beat that. <laughs> I, <laughs> the world would be a better I, place. <laughs> yes. I would say for me that um, 
the same as Richard, I just learned so much. And so I've been continuing to write about um, teacher stories because I don't um, want those stories to ever go away or not be heard again. Uh, because through all those years in the writing project, I just met some of the most outstanding people I will ever know. And I still know them. And their stories are still available to everyone. So what I take from it is this um, really passion um, to keep the writing project alive in, in print. And I realize mm-hmm. the archives are also going to do that. I know you're probably getting to a question about that, Tanya. That is actually my next well, question. You sort of pre-answered it. And you can have another go at it if you want. But I would love for you and Richard both to say, you've started to say, why the archives might be important. One of the things that I hope we always remember are the influences from other educators that have sort of filtered into the culture of the writing project. Uh, In New York City, uh, Jim Moffat's work was extremely important. And um, he was underappreciated in the city, in, in the Board of Education. But the, gradually, I saw his work, especially he had a curriculum system that I can't remember, the least is in, interactions or something mm-hmm. like yeah. that. Uh, <laughs> and it was, it was so far ahead of its time, so far ahead of what was going on in the schools at the time. And Jim Moffat came to talk to the New York City Writing Project, as he did with other projects across the country. And his manner... I, I, I hope the archive sort of can capture the extraordinary influence that Jim Moffat had on all of us. And I think his principles and his ideas you can find in the culture of the writing project. And so that's the kind of thing I think the archive must preserve, you know, the, the, these great influences uh, on the project over the years. And there are many others, of course. Um, I hope the archives preserve our character, what we have stood for all these years, um, why we're here in the first place. Um, And I also hope it documents why um, Mark St. John, our evaluator, called us the most successful and largest professional development effort in the history of education. It was a lot of superlatives. I think those are the right ones. Um, And I hope it tells stories. Um, because there are a lot of them, as Richard said, one of the great stories are the people who influenced our project, like Jim Moffat. Um, so those are my think. That's my thinking about the archives. Lovely. Uh, thank you both for um, telling us some stories and giving us a sense of uh, your experience of the history of this amazing enterprise. Um, Tomorrow, well, this week, the archives officially open, and they include, for um, from now till September 21st, um, display six glass cases full of NWP archives. Um, So I would love to hear from both of you, as well as Judy and Elise, what you would be looking for or hoping to see displayed there. Uh, Another way to ask that question might be, do you have a favorite NWP image or document or moment that you would curate into display if this was your project? 
And you know, you might even tell us what would the display case tag say about that um, mm. that piece. Um, Richard, do you want to go first? Well, I'm not sure about this, but one of the things that happened in many, many projects as they began was that they would create their first brochure that ah. would try to tell the um, the world of schools they came from, the teachers came from, what they would like to offer for professional development in schools. And some of these, uh, in my own case, are a little embarrassing because they are so amateurish and we didn't have the kind of technology we have today to produce beautiful objects. But I remember them being put together on the floor with scissors and, and, uh, and glue and right. uh, pasting and cutting. And I think that some of these early brochures might be um, just interesting, although they do look a bit amateurish, some of them, um, <laughs> because they were very early days. But there's something rather lovely about, about this, these simple documents. Oh, nice. How about you, Marianne? Well, this may be predictable because it's coming from me, but I would like to see a picture or pictures of the First Summer Institute, um, not for the hairstyles um, or the dress, but because the people in the First Summer Institute don't look like they know there's a photographer in the room. And I'm, I don't even remember there being a photographer in the room. That There's so much energy in that room that's picked up by those photographs. And people are looking at each other and smiling. And um, no one's looking at a camera. The teachers are so focused on each other. And I think it captures what happens in a summer institute and what happens when teachers and university faculty and directors get together and learn from each other, um, any one of those pictures would do that. They do. I'm smiling thinking of them. <laughs> uh, how about you, Judy? That's a, it's a really hard question, especially to follow um, both Richard and Marianne. Uh, I looked in a lot of those boxes, so... Um, I found a lot of things that I would nominate. Um, I guess if I had to choose one, it would be um, probably would also be a photo, but maybe if, uh, some of the more recent photos um, that it also show teachers with students. There's just so many good photos that show the engaged work that teachers are doing and the passion and the energy that they bring to the work. Um, it's there in the writing, too, but if I have to pick one thing, I guess maybe it would be one of those photos with there's some just fabulous ones um, that we've collected over the years, and they'll be there now in the archive. <laughs> uh, and Elise, what would you pick? Yeah, well, well, I think I'm going to say a little bit about photos, but then pivot to something else. I was thinking also, um, and particularly for the listeners, Marianne was referring to um, these fabulous photos from the very first Summer Institute, 1974. Um, and I think that there are probably some listeners who've seen them. Um, we've had them out on the Our NWP blog that was a celebration of our 40th um, anniversary. And I think that a lot of people are interested, Marianne, I hate to say it, in the hairstyles. And you yourself was wearing a madras <laughs> skirt, 
in one of these pictures. And I say that because anyone of my age knows exactly what that tells you about um, Marianne, and it's quite delightful that she would be there in that. Um, but apart from that, um, when you look at those photos, uh, you see something which does exactly what Mary and you and Richard were saying you hope that the archives preserve, and that's uh, very much the spirit and ethos and vision of the NWP. You look at it, and you can't tell who's a professor and who's a teacher, for mm-hmm. example. Um, mm-hmm. You can, uh, as Marianne, you said, you know, no one's looking at the camera. People are deeply engaged in mm-hmm. these amazing artifacts of practice. They're looking at clearly what you can see, each other's student work, handouts, materials, curriculum. There's a kind of rapt attention to the stuff we use in our practice. Um, and there's also so much absolute joyous laughter (laughs) that's going on in so many of the pictures. And I keep thinking, I I myself went through um, my summer institute later, that was 74, I went through um, in in 84, a decade later, uh, the clothes and the hairstyles might have been different, but that same ethos would have been in the room. Mm -hmm. And it's both the kind of complete sort of personal joyous enjoyment of each other but then all these signs of mutual respect and the the absence of hierarchy and in in the sense of teachers and professors and but also this rapt attention to the content the substance of our teaching there's so much that you can see in those photos um, I think you look at them quickly and you say, and, and people, I've seen it happen, um, people smile and say, well, look at that, that could be my summer institute, and then sort of think, isn't that lovely? But that's like a huge question. How is it that from 1974 to today that people could look at that photo and say, wow, that could be my summer institute? There's something there. There's a question about the continuity of the culture I think that that those photos raise, um, and even today, one of the taglines and one of the, the the things that we talk about in terms of the NWP is the phrase "joyous learning," and I think you totally see that. You see both joyous, mm-hmm. but you also really do see learning um, going on in those photos. So. To me, that's an interesting thing to point to in terms of continuity. Um, but then to nominate another thing, because we've had a couple of um, references to photos, and I think, the, I think photos of all sorts will probably show up in these um, display cases that we haven't seen yet. We're so excited to see them. Um, but Richard, Richard was talking about um, uh, the Urban Sites Network and talked about the story of, uh, of getting some support for it in that great story from DeWitt Wallace and the fortunate timing of their having just gone public, et cetera. So during that, now with a little, you know, flush with a little bit of cash um, in the Urban Sites Network doing a project together, um, that project happened at kind of the dawn of the popular and consumer Internet. So, of course, the Internet goes back at about um, just a little right. before our founding as a tool you know, for, for um, the military, for government, for science. But for people to be involved with the Internet, it's really starting in the 90s at about the same time then of, of yeah. urban sites. And we jumped into that, this little network of urban writing project sites in a thing called UrbNet. 
um, and we uh, we were building off mm-hmm. of um, a connection with the Breadloaf folks, our great fellow travelers at the Breadloaf School of English, who had um, adopted some new technology, first-class client, and uh, modems to, get to, to connect to your telephone and a number of other things that would let you actually write text messages to each other in this community. And so they helped us figure out we could do this for urban sites. And so they had BreadNet. We made ErbNet. And in the archive should be the printout of several years of discussions on ErbNet, which in some ways would represent, I think, not just um, certainly for us, um, kind of the first national cross-site use of Internet technology for people to talk and examine practice and share ideas. Uh, But in a way, if you think about the time, really kind of the first for uh, teachers in general. And right now, you know, if you imagine scholars today, it's almost um, unthinkable to imagine that you would that you would be looking at teaching and discussions and teachers being able to examine process practice together without internet mediation, without having all of these tools, including audio and video and all those sorts of things. Um, but there was right at the beginning, not that long ago, you know, and being able to say, what did people talk about? And how did they build on each other? And how did that ethos and culture that we saw in the photographs built in a face-to-face culture of respect and mutual examination of practice and that sort of thing. How does that translate in the very birth of the use of a new kind of tool? And it would be right there in the archives that you could look at that. Um, so it's kind of, you know, it's, it's kind of amazing and exciting to think what would happen in those cases if you put something next to something else. Um, that in a file drawer would have been, you know, categorized completely differently. But when they're sitting there next to each other, will they speak to each other? What would they say to each other by seeing these artifacts together? So that's kind of exciting to me about these. these um, we'll see what's there in the display cases. Yeah, and Elise, yeah, I had forgotten about Yeah, <laughs> I'm also going to remember one other thing if I can jump in, which to Elise and Richard's and Marianne's stories, you know, the thing that we have in the archives um, for each of these networks, urban sites, rural sites, English language learners, teacher inquiry, all of the sub-networks of the National Writing Project also produce reports and documents. So they're there to speak to each other over that period of time that Elise and Richard were describing as well, along with the grant reports to the funders and, um, and the book that the Writing Project produced, Cityscapes. So um, these artifacts are now there for everyone to look at in new ways, Um, and they're all collected, and also we have acid-free paper protecting them, so they'll they'll survive over the years. Yeah. The ErbNet, you still have the printouts of the ErbNet. I cannot imagine the kind of communications we had back then. I've completely forgotten about that, but that was indeed the first instance of trying to painfully communicate with other people. That goes back to acoustic modems. Absolutely. Uh, That's you, right. Where you could watch the cursor slowly unfold letters across the screen. Usually <laughs> 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 green. <laughs> and of course from our perspective um of today, it's incredibly painful to imagine it, but at the moment <laughs> it was completely new. So 
it um, was something that um, you know that added a tool um, rather than yeah. feeling like an early version of a tool at that time. It was kind of miraculous. But yes, we were. Yes, there would also be uh, probably in the grant files, uh, to Judy's point, that there are so many different things. You can probably see there's a budget there where we bought 1,400 baud modems for people to hook up yeah. to their to their yeah, um, right. uh, telephones. As Marianne was saying, the ones that are attached to the wall in your home, <laughs> you know, those sorts yeah. of things. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm also remembering that Dixie Goswami at Breadloaf. Mm-hmm has been a long, long friend of the writing project and and had her own way of influencing us. And certainly she was, she was one of the first people to do this kind of communication. But she has been a long and good friend to to many of us and, of course, in the end had a site at her own university. And that was a great breakthrough. So she should certainly be remembered. I could... Um do this all day with all y'all, and I'm sure our listeners could as well. It's so fantastic uh, to hear your memories building one from another, and uh, makes me very anxious to go see what is actually in the cases. Uh, but in case you can't get there right away, or um, are just dying from hearing all of these stories to tell your own, I want to remind listeners that we are inviting everyone in the writing project to share their favorite memory or artifact from NWP history on social media and to use the hashtag OurNWP, all one word, all lowercase. Um, Already this week we've seen pictures from the early years of the New York City Writing Project, Richard, a great picture of Ed Osterman that as someone, (laughs) as a young person in our office said, man, he looks exactly the same except maybe his glasses. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, we've seen videos from favorite annual meeting keynotes Um, we've had people write 140 character love letters to the NWP that sounds something like dear NWP do you remember when we went away to this place and we made these things or we wrote together they're fantastic and we'd love to hear even more so if all of you all my guests have um more memories to share in the middle of the night, feel free to tweet them or post them to Instagram or Facebook. And listeners to the show, you should get busy too and post your memories and photos and videos and writing samples. Um, Elise, that brings up the point that while we have captured these these first 40-something years of the NWP in the archives at this moment, it, there's going to be more. So I'd like to ask you a few questions about the Archive Project as the Executive Director, if that's okay with you. Sure, I'll put that hat on. <laughs> <laughs> this project, first of all, has really been shepherded through on your watch as the fourth Executive Director in the organization's 40-plus year history. Why did you, at this moment, as the Executive, <laughs> executive Director, want to invest in the Archive's? Yeah, that's a great question, and and I would say, um, and it's very much a we. You've already noted uh, Judy's critical role in pointing this whole project, and um, as Judy noted, it really has been uh, a labor of love from across the network. Uh, I don't know that, that Judy, um, that you named it, but you talked about the fundraising effort that we did to establish this. It actually was $100,000. That's $100,000 raised by the network 
for itself to do this project. So it's both why, you know, I would want to invest in it and us in the office, but then also why so many in the network contributed to establishing it. Um, so it really is a it really is a lovely and network wide effort, and I think part of that I, I go back to a moment when I was actually talking to um, to a site director and uh, about the archives project very very early, and he said, well we kind of we have an archives too in the office, which I completely believe. I think most writing project sites have. Um, their own version of an archives, things that they've they've shared, and actually some folks sent in parts of their local writing project archive to the to be included in the archive, for which we're really grateful. Um, but one of the things he said was, yeah, we we actually it's the bottom two drawers of our file cabinet. And it cracked me up because I was a previous director too. It would have been like these file drawers too for me. My local writing project site would have been the archives. Uh, and then, of course, we had out here all these boxes, 159 boxes sort of all over the place because, as Judy said, um, we kind of save everything. This is often what teachers do. But what we wanted to do actually was not say that's our archive. Our archive, we wanted to be actually a professional scholar's archive. So when I think of the archive project, part of why I think it's so important is that as a network, we took a step to say that not only is our history important to us because it's our history and we love it, um, and we talk about it and we share it with each other. But it's actually important to the world. It's important to scholars. It's important to researchers. And we need to both save it, um, which we have been doing by holding on to it, but really save it and especially by working with um, a professional archivist, make it available to future generations of scholars and researchers. Uh, because actually, Looking back, I think what what Marianne said earlier, you know, after the first Summer Institute, people didn't have a vision that 40-some years later there would be this thing called the National Writing Project. I think, Marianne, you said, you know, we just we wanted to see each other. And in a way, even though I think current teachers who go to a Summer Institute or join a local writing project, they know there's this bigger thing. But you're you know you're in your career you're in your life and your question is when will we get together and what will we do next and that's that's what the writing project's there for and you don't necessarily say to yourself and most organizations don't always say to themselves well we're actually a really interesting historical example and we need to make ourselves available as a historical example um, I'm all the time sort of impressed as I now get to spend time in, in policy discussions or with other scholars who are looking at really important questions uh, about policy or about the development of, of teaching as a profession or our school systems and how unique, it keeps coming to me, how unique and interesting is the NWP in so many dimensions. Um, and how many questions the scholarly community should put to our history. Uh, and the archives are part of what answer that question. Um, it's everything from how does this thing, which feels like a program, how, do, how does it work um, so that people are so amazingly impacted by it and feel transformed by it and are so loyal to it? So how does it work? There's that kind of question. But there's also a kind of question like, um, 
how is it that a national network persuaded so many universities, given their hierarchical relationship um, or sense of uh, a knowledge-creating entity in relationship to a field like teaching? How did these universities um, come to adopt something and spread something that in some ways was countercultural to what a university would have seen itself as about? particularly at different points in the in history, or who funded it and how did that funding happen and what were the goals that they were advancing at different particular mm. times in history. Mm. Um, there are so many kinds of questions for scholars of different sorts uh, that can be answered through this extremely unique uh, case study, which is the NWP. So we really wanted to make sure that, that in – creating an archive and working with an archivist, um, that we didn't prejudge what those questions would be. Um, I think when you think about you know, what people choose to save, we might have chosen to save, let's say, um, a whole range of things about the content about the teaching of writing, which is absolutely there, um, 100%, including some very early contributions to the development of the theories that we now think of as the new literacy and the contributions of the writing project. There are materials there from early scholars continuing through this day. And I think we would have saved that. I'm not sure that we would have thought to save, uh, for example, all the contracts ever developed between the writing project and a local university but I know that there's a policy scholar out there who would say, oh, my God, what a treasure trove of data. How interesting to imagine and to look at the comparison between what an organization like this chose to do to invest its money, who it spent it on, and for what purposes vis-a-vis -a, -vis a school district or a federal government. Or So one of the things that the archivists really pushed us to do um, was to be uh, very – um, very big in our vision about what would go in the archive and how it could be categorized and found and serve a field in the future. We won't always be here to tell these stories or to help people understand our, us as a case study, but we can leave these materials for people to answer future questions um, about education and the improvement of writing and and actually the development of the profession in a critical time. They're going to be in there, even if we can't see what use they'll make of them. So for that reason, I guess it was really important um, to me and also everyone who contributed as we got to that point in our history of about 40 years, and we could start to see that the early generations of writing project leaders were moving to retirement, or et cetera, um, that we couldn't just be the people who walked around and told our story. We had to leave the stuff um, so that future generations could make new knowledge out of us as a case study. Uh, and I think that was really part of the impetus. Uh, that was a lovely and complete answer. And um, I was going to – I anticipate – or you anticipated my question about um, some cases or examples of what people might – use the archives for or what kind of questions they might ask. So we've said throughout this hour um, the archive seems to be living. People can send us pictures. We're still working. Um, can you give us a little picture of, of this as a moment? Is the archive finished? If not, what happens next? Mm -hmm. Well, of course, the archive isn't finished 
couldn't be finished because we're not finished, so the archive can't be finished. It's it's an interesting moment um, in that so many of the very precious materials, another reason why we wanted to do this and do this now, Judy mentioned, for example, acid-free paper, things like that. The early materials, um, many of which were paper materials or were earlier forms of audio or video technology have been archived, they've been preserved, um, they may have been digitized in different ways, so that those sort of precious things in the 159 boxes that we would worry about <laughs> um, for flood or fire or anything like that have um, all been preserved. So that is a phase one. Uh, we also need to think about preserving our digital assets, uh, which for many people seems uh, improbable because aren't they sort of not only preserved, but they can be multiplied ad infinitum in a digital world. But actually, different versions of websites and uh, disappear as they get, uh, as websites change or material, digital materials change and grow and are written and rewritten. So there's a lot to think about in preserving our digital assets. Uh, and that's a phase that has just started, but um, with some early websites and some early materials that we have, but now we need to move into a phase of really thinking about how do we preserve and archive these ongoing digital assets that represent, if you think of the website at the NWP and other kinds of tools, a kind of repository of thinking and knowledge from across the network for decades. And then, of course, those things will grow. And so developing then in a third phase an ongoing plan with the Bancroft Library to make sure that new items can be added, that the, um, that the finding tools and the things that scholars and visitors would use in order to interact with our stuff would, able, would be able to be updated and shared. And so there are some more phases of work. We would hope that people would contribute, continue to contribute in a couple ways. We would always want uh, people to be able to share elements of their local archives that should become part of the national collection that they would want to do. They should do that, and they can always contact the office to, to make that happen. We also hope that people will continue to um, contribute in terms of funding. Um, it's been built. The large portion of the work has happened, but the continuing maintenance of the archives is something that we would like to be able to invest in. So kind of in our annual campaigns, we'll be asking people to think about the archives too. Um, but as long as we continue, the archives is never finished. Um, it, will all, it will be there to, con to capture the rest of our story, however long that is, um, uh, as a case study. The case study goes on until the case study is done, and so the archives would have to be able to continue along with that living history. Thank goodness. For instance, <laughs> this radio show will have to go to the archives. It will. Media classic. Um, we are very near the end of the hour, so um, I would want to first invite any of the four of you, if you have anything you didn't get a chance to say about the archives or the history or the writing project, to uh, take a turn to say it now. <laughs> I, would, I would just add that, you know, we, we've talked a lot about many things in the archives. The National Writing Project writes and has written, and there are some fabulous, fabulous pieces 
in the archives, which ever, as we packed and unpacked boxes, we rediscovered for ourselves. And I hope listeners will, will be able to visit at some point because there's a real treasure trove. Yeah, yeah. And I'd like to go put an exclamation point behind um, Mark St. John's comment, the one that, that you shared, Marianne, about the, uh, what the NWP is, um, the uniqueness of it, uh, the most successful, the longest, uh, you know, the, the biggest and the longest, and as you said, Marianne, a whole list of superlatives. But I think all of us, like in our hearts, sort of believe that we are in many ways as Mark has argued, unique. Uh, and so that's something for us to take marvelously seriously, both to celebrate that, that we feel that what he, when he says that, that there's some truth to it and we should celebrate that, but then also take seriously that that means something. And I wonder what it means. What does that uniqueness bring to the conversations of today and tomorrow? Um, so I'd like to put an exclamation point behind Mark St. John's um, comments about us. That's another reason for this archive. There was a little bit of giggling at my long um, wait time before, but I am well-trained teacher, and I know to wait. So <laughs> um, last chance, if you have any last thoughts, And if not, I would like to put an exclamation point behind um, Marianne's comment that uh, the, the, the moment when your summer institute ends and you don't want it to end and you and figure out what to do together next because teachers um, crave good, smart company uh, feels so true. And I feel like I've been so lucky to land professionally in this network, which always provides good, smart company, and I am so honored, as I'm sure um, listeners will feel to hear your stories of the past, I'm so honored to have spent not only much of my professional life, but this exact hour in your good, smart company. So thank you all very much. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Tanya. Good night, everyone. Good night. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.